The system of English punctuation consists of relatively few marks, and only a half dozen or so of those are in frequent use. So, why does punctuation inspire so much controversy, controversy, passion, and uncertainty? Well, today I'm pleased to explain. Professor David Crystal, author of Making a Point: The Persnickety Story of English Punctuation, joins us in an attempt to make sense of it all. His book is published by St. Martin's Press, and I'm very pleased it has brought David Crystal back to our show. Welcome back. Hey, it's nice to be back. How are you? I'm well. Uh, in some cases, uh, punctuation is different in the U.K., where you are, and in the United States, even though we speak the same language. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That's one of the problems, you know, and especially over here, because uh, American punctuation has begun to influence British punctuation more, I think, than the other way around. And it all goes back to the beginning of punctuation, when there were all these differences of opinion. You're absolutely right. You know, there are very few marks, and isn't it amazing that they cause so much trouble? Did the ancient languages like Greek or Latin use any system of punctuation? Oh, sure. But, you know, when we go back to the beginning of English, we're talking 1,500 years ago now, nearly, um, there was no punctuation at all. If you, if you pick up the old English manuscripts from around the year 700, 800, you, can, you read them, you don't see any punctuation marks. You know, you don't even see spaces between the words sometimes. Um, and it didn't matter because, you know, pe people were, you, I, I'm speaking to you now and you're not hearing any punctuation marks particularly, are you? You know, you don't need it in a way if the only re reason for having punctuation is to read aloud, as it was in those days. You know, the monks wanted to give sermons and things, and they didn't really need a lot of punctuation in order to do that. But then things changed. Well, uh, on a personal level, I have my own system of punctuation to help me when I have to read something aloud. A, a comma often informs me that I have to shift gears and tone, and I italicize words that I want to stress. Uh, so is punctuation there because it guides us when we're reading aloud? That's how it started, exactly. You, you are doing exactly what those monks did a thousand years ago. Because when they wanted to read something aloud and suddenly realized that actually without punctuation they couldn't get the meaning right, or worse, you know, they were going to have an ambiguity which was heretical possibly, then they started to mark their texts up. You know, a little mark upwards to show a rising tone of the voice, a little mark sideways to show a pause and so on. And slowly, 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 these marks developed until we get to the period a few hundred years later of printing. And as soon as the printers came on the scene, they had to sort things out because now it wasn't just for reading aloud you needed punctuation. You needed punctuation in order to understand the written word on the page. And that was a very different use indeed. How much did things change after 1066 when the French came in? Did they have no. more complicated punctuation than the Angles and the Saxons? Oh, not so, not so much in those days. I mean, spelling was was drastically affected by the French. You know, the French scribes came in and started to re-spell English words in all sorts of strange ways. You know, that's why we spell the word queen with a Q and a U at the front. You know, it's a very French sort of spelling. It wasn't spelt like that in Anglo-Saxon times. But no, they didn't add much to punctuation. It was William Caxton, 1476. You know, along he comes, sets up his printing press in London, and suddenly he has to write, uh, present books to a market where lots of people can read now. You know, in Anglo-Saxon times, hardly anybody could read. 
even in Caxton's time, it wasn't that many, but still there were more than before. And so now he has to work out a system for making sure that the words on the page can be read clearly by people who can read. And this is where the system develops. How certain were printers of the author's intention when they set their texts? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Uh, the poor old typesetters who, uh, remember, this is the first time anybody had done this kind of thing with the English language, they often had no idea, and they would punctuate sometimes really rather randomly. I mean, this is the big problem we have with Shakespeare. You know, this is Shakespeare's big year this year, so everybody's looking at Shakespeare carefully, and what you see when you look at the big first folio of Shakespeare is all sorts of strange punctuation marks all over the place. Did he um, use punctuation? Oh, he certainly did, but then so did the typesetters, and whether, they, whether his punctuation ever got into print because of the way they were sometimes rather randomly using these marks, huh, who, who knows? So does that mean that we may not know what Shakespeare really intended when he wrote To Be or Not To Be? Absolutely, yeah. If you, and, and if you look at different modern editions of the plays, put them side by side, you will see that different editors have uh, sometimes put in, 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 in a certain speech, you know, an exclamation mark rather than a question mark or the other way around, or added a comma in here or taken one out there, all depending upon how they were desperately trying to get into Shakespeare's head, if you like. And this is the story for all of us. Well, you said that the monk scribes had a system for copying manuscripts. Why didn't that system get incorporated into the system of printers? Well, it did to some extent. I mean, the, the printers didn't start from scratch. They looked at the way the manuscripts had been developing over the Middle Ages, noticed that there were some uh, common ways of using certain marks, and, and the basic marks, you see, were, were beginning to be established, like the full stop, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, most of the terms that you and I use for punctuation, like, like comma and semicolon and colon and all of this, they actually didn't come into the English language until the 16th century, after printing developed. So the printers just started the business off, and then it took ages for it to be established. And indeed, coming to the present day, it still is being established. When did the word punctuation first appear in the language? That's a medieval, a medieval word, to punctuate, to add stops, you know, punctus. Uh, the word punctus goes back a long way, right to Latin times. Is that linked to the medieval... Uh, uh, the uh, development of the trivium in universities? Yes, I think so, because, um, you know, that trivium had grammar, didn't it, as one of its big components. It was now, grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Yeah, that's right. And how do you mark your grammar, you see? This is the thing. This is the big conflict that we have still today. If you see punctuation as a guide to reading aloud, then you'll put pauses in all over the place and commas in all over the place. But if you see punctuation as a guide to reading silently, then you only need the commas when it's important for the grammar, you see. And this is the conflict between all of us these days. You know, here's a game that any of your listeners can do. Uh, take a page, and um, well, any sort of page from a book or a magazine or a newspaper, type it out, but without any of the punctuation marks, and then as a kind of evening game, when you've got nothing better to do, plonk it down in front of a number of people and say, punctuate it. Mm -hmm. And no two people will punctuate it in exactly the same way. And the reason is because some people will be reading it in their heads, as it were, aloud to themselves, and putting in pauses where their neighbor, of course, would read it to themselves in a different way. 
And that's why so, there's so much variation these days. How did spelling reform influence punctuation? Hardly at all. The spelling reformers were so bound up with spelling as an end in itself. Uh, this is, we're talking the 16th century now. That's when the first big movement of spelling reform started. And they paid very, very little attention to punctuation. And, and, the, and you can see why. The spelling system of English is enormously complicated, and primarily because there are so many words. They've all got to be spelled, thousands and thousands and thousands of words. We've, we've got to spell them all and get them as right as we can. So it's a huge problem. Punctuation, as you were saying at the beginning of the program, not many marks at all, you know, a dozen marks, really, apart from some weird exceptions. Um, and so people felt, oh, punctuation can look after itself. We don't need to worry about that too much. They were wrong, <laughs> but that's what they thought. So there, uh, this is still a kind of a personal thing uh, where I put a comma. Uh, is is fine. My English teacher in, in high school who told me I used too many commas was really not respecting my need for those pauses? Well, you see, that's, that's, the, that's where it all comes down to in the end, personal taste. There are certain things about punctuation which are obligatory, certain rules that you've got to have. So, for instance, sentences have to have full stops or question marks or exclamation marks or something. So there are some things about which 99% of us would agree totally and very few would disagree. But with things like commas, commas are indeed very much a matter of personal taste. There are a few cases where you've got to have a comma, otherwise you're not going to get the reading right. But an awful lot of the time, if I start a sentence off and say, however, Leonard, um, now, do I put a comma in after however? Some people will say, yes, you do. And some people will say, no, you don't. And if you ask them why, they will say, because this is how you read it. And they'll say, however, comma, Leonard, comma, you know. And mm -hmm. some people will say, no, it's more, however, Leonard, without the comma. And that's how the arguments start. I'm speaking with David Crystal. Uh, his latest book, Making a Point, The Persnickety Story of English Punctuation. We're talking about punctuation on today's Please Explain, and as always during these segments, we invite your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. We, um, you can also write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Um, well, I, the reason I asked about um, spelling reform is it seems to me we mentioned Shakespeare before there's an awful lot of activity around that time uh, when words when we are deciding that words should be spelled one way only uh, and didn't Ben Johnson feel the need to write a book called English Grammar? Yes he did indeed people are so surprised to hear that they know Ben Johnson is a, a great dramatist and he wrote plays uh, competing with Shakespeare they forget that he did write, indeed, an English grammar. And in that grammar, he's one of the first people to actually pay full attention to the importance of punctuation. You know, there are two types of people in, in the world, Leonard. There are people who care greatly about punctuation, and there are people who don't. Now, the people who care are like Johnson. Johnson cared. And many years later, Mark Twain cared deeply about punctuation. Mark Twain was so angry that if a proofreader dared to change one of his marks, he would sound off against them with a great fury. On the other hand, there are people like, uh, for example, William Wordsworth, to take a famous example, who was so 
carefree about punctuation. There's a famous story that when he was uh, sending the uh, lyrical ballads to press, the second edition, he, he simply said to Coleridge, you know, I don't know how to punctuate this. Um, what shall I do? And Coleridge said, send it to somebody who can punctuate, and they can do it for you. And that's exactly what he did. He, he, he sent his manuscript to Sir Humphrey Davy, the great scientist. He didn't know Davy. He just sent it off. I tell this story in the book. And Davy and said to Davy, please punctuate this for me, and then send it to the publishers. Don't bother me about it. And that's what happened. Well, was, was Ben Johnson the right person uh, to write about English grammar? Didn't he insert a semicolon in between the Ben and the Johnson in his signature? Yes, he did indeed. What, and what led him to do that? The semicolon didn't have its modern value in those days. You see, these marks, when they come in, nobody quite knows how to use them. Most of them come from the continent of Europe, and, and nobody's very sure about what to do with them. So some people use the semicolon even to mark a question. Some people use the semicolon as a way of, as it were, adding an exclamation mark, you know. So this is Ben. That's me, Johnson. You know, that was the kind of function that the semicolon had. Doesn't Shakespeare play with the uses of punctuation and its meaning in A Midsummer Night's Dream? Uh, yes, he and does. then Marlowe plays speech. with it in Edward II. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that lovely speech of Peter Quince's in the play within a play, where if you alter the uh, punctuation, you get a totally different meaning. Lots of people did this. These punctuation marks, when they came in, you can imagine it. You're a dramatist in 1600, thereabouts. And in are coming all these new punctuation marks. Well, you want to play with them. You know, you, you want to see what you can do with them. And several dramatists actually... Uh, wrote lines where if you punctuate one way it means one thing punctuate another way it means a different thing and Midsummer Night's Dream is a very good example I'm speaking with uh, David Crystal who uh, is the uh, the author of a number of, of books including The Story of English in 100 Words uh, also Spell It Out uh, he uh, has written many books and published articles in fields ranging from forensic linguistics uh, to the liturgy of Shakespeare. And the latest book, the one that we are discussing as part of our Please Explain segment today, is Making a Point, The Persnickety Story of English Punctuation. It's published by St. Martin's Press. We will continue our conversation after this. And we are back with David Crystal on today's Please Explain we're talking about punctuation. He's written a book called Making a Point, The Persnickety Story of English Punctuation. It's published in this country by St. Martin's Press. And we have a lot of people calling in. So let's take a few of those calls. Valerie from Manhattan. Hi, you're on there. Oh, hi. I just wanted earlier you were talking about um, the difference between UK English punctuation and American English punctuation. Mm -hmm. And you also did a bit on uh, commas and how they are sort of um, shall we say flexible? Um, I've noticed. Uh, well, I have a pet peeve about the placement of the comma next to quotation marks. You have uh, a pet peeve. I have a pet peeve. Who are you going to uh, argue with, Daniel Webster? No, I'm or not going to argue. I'm just going to state the my, Oxford uh, say the my, OED. Say how I feel. Okay. <laughs> so I have. Uh, I've put together a sample sentence. Here it is. Um, I had a copy of The World According to Garp which kept me occupied on the train. And in American English, you have to write, quote, the world according to Garp, comma, unquote. And I think in UK punctuation, you do 
the, quote, the world according to Garp, unquote, comma. Yes. So the placement of the comma is different. And, and, and by the way, the same applies to periods. Uh, the period is inside the quote uh, or in, in America and outside in England. And I was told uh, when I inquired about that when I worked at a type shop uh, and was a proofreader that uh, it's because American typographers felt that that period was getting lost and that comma was getting lost. So they felt they should tuck it inside the quotes. On the other hand, people are very confused about what to do with a question mark with a quote. Uh, They are unsure whether they should stick the question mark inside the quote or outside the quote. Uh, And uh, it has to be explained that if you're quoting a question, you put it inside. But unlike what we do with periods and commas, you put the question mark outside of the quotes if the whole sentence is a question that includes a quote. Am am I being clear here, David Crystal? Yes, you most certainly are. Uh, And what you've done and what your caller has done is identify yet another factor in the persnickety story of punctuation. Uh, Earlier on, we were talking about the two big drivers, the need to have punctuation mark pronunciation uh, when you're reading aloud and the need to have punctuation mark grammar when you're reading silently. Now there's a third consideration coming in, the typesetters wanting punctuation to look nice. Mm. And, and to be noticed and not to be obscured by this and that and the other. And so suddenly you get the typesetters coming along. It's not just the orators and the grammarians, but the, but the printers uh, had an enormously important role to play. And, of course, British printers and American printers went in different directions, not just for the reason you mentioned, but simply because, you know, it's Britain versus America. This is a matter of identity here as much as anything else. British typesetters want their stuff to look British. American typesetters want their stuff to look American. So it's another factor in the whole mix. Greg from Morristown, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm in favor of the uh, Oxford uh, comma uh, because if I want to set something, say, here's a headline, and I put it in quotes so somebody knows this is what I want the headline to be, I don't want to include the comma because that's not necessarily what I want in the headline. So I'm in favor of the Oxford comma. The but do, you, wait, do you want to explain the Oxford comma, David Crystal? Yes, certainly. Uh, This goes back several hundred years. Uh, When you get a situation like the tall, dark, and handsome man, the question is, do you put a comma in before the and or not? There are two ways of doing it, tall, comma, dark, comma, and handsome, or tall, comma, dark, no comma, and handsome. Now, it's called the Oxford comma because Oxford University Press in the 19th century felt that it should be in. They argued like this. There's two adjectives here, they're equal, so each should have a comma, and so they put it in. Cambridge University Press, on the other hand, and several other publishers decided, no, no, that's not, that's not right, that's not the way to do it. Uh, the word and gives you the meaning, so you don't need a comma as well as the word and, uh, you don't need it. And so one strand, the Oxford strand, went with the comma, the Cambridge strand went the other way, and all over the English-speaking world, people followed one approach rather than the other. So this is a situation that will never be resolved, I don't think, Leonard. It's one of those 50-50 situations. Two people great universities. Like it or hate it. Two great universities at loggerheads oh. over a comma. Uh, Absolutely. Becca in Brooklyn. Oh, go ahead. Becca in Brooklyn asks about the origin of the M-dash. Um, now, a keyboard only has one kind of a dash, 
But yeah. it really meant a lot to different people, whether they use a an N dash or an M dash. Hyphen, of course, they were the, yes. the three. The three factors here. This is another introduction um, as a result of printing. But late on, you see, you see, one of the interesting things about punctuation is that it didn't all happen all at once. Although a lot of the marks that we're talking about came in in the 16th century, not all of them did. And these dash contrasts that you mentioned weren't around in those days. No, no, we're talking now about the 18th and 19th century. Even in the even 100 years ago, people were still trying to work out what were the best rules for governing the use of punctuation. And in Victorian times, you get this uh, an awful lot of variation in the use of dashes. For example, after a colon, you'd get a dash in Victorian England, uh, whereas today we'd never put a, col a dash after a colon, I don't think. And the poor old apostrophe, you know, that was one of the reason why there's so much trouble about the apostrophe is that it was one of the last marks to ever get itself sorted out. Now, and what's the, the difference between using a, 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 an M dash and using an apostrophe when you're throwing in uh, a, a clause? Uh, an M dash and an apostrophe? Yes, I mean, in or the end, you, you, they're, they're serving the same function, aren't they? Oh, well, the... In some circumstances, yes, and in some circumstances, no. You know, this, it's almost impossible to generalize about any punctuation mark. This is how a lot of the rows start, because people say, oh, you must always, for example, put a full stop in at the end of a sentence. But then you look around you at all the notices in the shops and so on, and street signs, and there's no punctuation at the end of the sentence, you know. So there are exceptions always to the rule. And so some people will choose a, a dash because they feel that it best expresses what they want to say, and some people will avoid it and try something else. And then we have ellipses also being used uh, dot, expressively. Dot, 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 you mean? Yes. Yeah, that's right. To, to mark, to mark uh, incompleteness, a very valuable strategy for any of your listeners out there who are thinking of writing a crime novel, for example, uh, and you want to leave it unclear as to what's going on. Who did it? Who did it? It was uh, dot, dot, dot. You know, you need those dot, dot, dots in order to leave the, list, the reader guessing. Agatha Christie uses them all the time. Now, the apostrophe is the one that, it seems to me, gets misused pretty much the most. Uh, as uh, somebody who looks at a lot of writing, um, I'm constantly uh, amazed at how many people put it, uh, an apostrophe in its when it should not yeah. have one. Uh, but yeah. also, uh, the, some people put an apostrophe uh, to suggest a plural. So they'll say, uh, right. when obviously it shouldn't be there. Um, are people totally confused about the apostrophe? Yes, they are. And the reason is that the apostrophe was the last punctuation mark to be sorted out, or hoped to be sorted out, by the, the printers. It really only got sorted out a 100 years ago. And the printers who did it didn't get it entirely right. So there are two types of example here. Let's take the it's one first. The printers thought like this. The apostrophe can be used to mark a, an omitted letter, Nobody has any argument about that. And also to express possession. So, if you're talking about the cat's bowl and it's one cat, apostrophe S. If you're talking about the cat's bowls and there's more than one cat, S apostrophe. And so if you now say, it's bowls, because the word it's expresses possession, 
you would expect there to be an apostrophe there because it's marking possession, you see. But the printers forgot about that, and they, they didn't include that in their rule. So today we've got the exception. It's meaning possession doesn't have the apostrophe, unlike all the other examples. And that's the reason why people get confused. Little kids get confused about this. Because the apostrophe in the case of it's is for a missing letter. It is. In the same way that we use it in doesn't and aren't. That's right. And the reason why the printers didn't put one in with the possession case, as in its bowl is on the table, uh, is because they didn't want to confuse with the it is example. But as a result, you know, all the poor little kids all around the world who are told the apostrophe marks possession, the apostrophe marks possession, and then they come across the word it's, and they say to their teacher, please, miss, you you know, can I put an apostrophe in here? Because it's is possessive. And the teacher says, no, you must not. There are some... Uh, forms of punctuation that people think we shouldn't even be using, like exclamation points or semicolons. Didn't Kurt Vonnegut uh, give as his first rule of creative writing, do not use semicolons? Yes, that's right. He certainly did. And then cheekily, in one of his chapters, puts one in just mm-hmm. to say, to make the point that all rules can be broken. And <laughs> I thought that was really rather nice. Yeah, people get upset about some punctuation marks when they're overused. And I think you're exactly right. The exclamation mark is a very good example of this because, uh, you know, some writers, they sprinkle them all over the place. And the more you use them, the more they lose their impact, really. Terry Pratchett is a very good example of somebody who comments in several of his novels about how you must never overuse the exclamation mark. So, yes, uh, the moderation in all things, really, I think, is the basic principle here. Now, in Spanish... They use an inverted exclamation point or exclamation mark and an an inverted question mark at the beginning of a question and then the the other uh, one at the end of the question or exclamation. And I always thought that was a really good idea, but but they're, they're the only people who do that? Yeah, it is a very sensible idea. After all, if you're reading from left to right and you come up against a sentence, how do you know it's going to be a question or not? Not until you get to the end of the sentence, by which time it's too late, you've read it. So it's a very logical idea. Let's mark the fact that there's a question coming up with a question mark at the beginning of the sentence and show, uh, put it upside down to show it's different from the one at the end. Same with exclamations. Well, do you know, in the 16th century, people did try to use that in English. Um, some writers thought this was such a good idea that they borrowed the Spanish convention and started to write their English in that way. But the trouble was the printers didn't like it. And the reason they didn't like it was because their their case of type was already so full and so cluttered with all sorts of stuff. But they really wanted to cut down on the number of punctuation marks that they had to deal with. And so it simply never caught on in Britain. Now, exclamation marks uh, do... Do younger people tend to use them more than older people? Is, is there a gender difference as well? It's certainly a gender difference. If you do any study of exclamation marks, uh, whether it's in, in essays, stories, or on the Internet especially, if you go to places like Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of thing, you will find that girls use exclamation marks something like twice as often as boys do. Do we have any idea why? 
I wish I knew. Get the Nobel Prize if I knew the answer to that. It isn't just a matter of emotion. I mean, what, what you have to appreciate is that exclamation marks are used for all kinds of reasons, uh, sometimes for emphasis, sometimes to express emotion, sometimes to express irony or sarcasm. You know, there are all sorts of reasons. So it's very easy to be sort of a bit naive about it and say, oh, girls are more emotional than boys. No, it isn't as simple as that. But it's just a fact. And uh, depends, too, on the context, doesn't it? You know, there are some Internet situations where you, you do sound off a bit and some where you're a bit more, uh, more serious. Is the Internet changing some of the rules of punctuation? Oh, yeah, and especially the full stop. This is the one that any younger listener will immediately recognize. If you're, uh, and some older ones too, actually, because it's going up the age range. If you're having an instant message chat, or just a quick to and fro, to and fro, to and fro, on the whole, you don't put a full stop in at the end of your sentence. You don't need to, because the messages are going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. It simply isn't necessary. It doesn't affect the meaning at all, because the sentences are very short. If you then put a, punch, uh, a full stop in at a certain point, it means, hey, I'm being serious now, or hey, I don't like what you just said, or hey, I'm just about to end this conversation with you. In other words, the full stop in those circumstances has added on a kind of emotional value, and this has never happened to the full stop before, and it's all happening right now on the Internet. David on Twitter asks, what's the real deal on one or two spaces after a period ending a sentence? Another big typesetting thing from the 19th century, um, the uh, t t uh, typewriting was the thing that uh, really caused the confusion decades ago. People remember typewriters, and I'm not sure many people will these days, but um, certainly when, when you and I were in our <laughs> middle ages, uh, we were using them all the time, um, and the type. The typists were taught, you know, two spaces after the period and all the rest of it to make sure that the, uh, the because of the way the type flowed on the page, they needed the extra space so that you could be really clear that a sentence had come to an end. Now, when you go to printing, of course, you don't need that kind of um, simple mechanical uh, visualization. And so the printers uh, basically dropped the idea. Not all, but, but most did. And so we're left with a certain amount of confusion. Any of us, uh, any, any people older than a certain age that did a lot of typewriting once upon a time will certainly be confused now at what they see. Let's take a call from Ramaswamy in Clofton, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I have a question for the, for the guest. Um, I, uh, when, I, when I'm writing, I find that sometimes I have to put a colon there and then a follow-up sentence. Um, and I'm confused whether I should put a colon or a dash. And both of them seem to be uh, equivalent, and I just choose one or the other arbitrarily. Mm. Is there, uh, are there rules? Yeah, the, the, the rule is a very interesting one. It's more to do with uh, formality of expression than anything else, but it's also uh, to do with the, the, the impression you give by using one rather than the other. If you use a colon, you're giving your reader the impression that you have organized your sentence and that the first part of the sentence and the second are in your head and you know it's quite clear what's going on. It gives an impression of, of you're in control. If you use a dash, the dash gives an impression of what you're about to say as an afterthought, a sort of 
oh, by the way, you know, and so you get a kind of, you use dashes much more commonly if you were trying to write down a conversation. If you were a novelist, for instance, you'd use dashes quite a lot to represent the kind of ongoing, I'm thinking it up as I'm going along sort of thing. Whereas if you were a scientist, you would hardly ever use dashes because in a scientific report, you would want to put your colon in to show that you were in control of the syntax that you were using. Do all languages use some form of punctuation? Chinese, Japanese? Absolutely, yeah. Some not so much as others, um, depending upon the writing system. You get it much less in non-Roman writing systems, in you know Chinese, for example, or Arabic. Uh, there are punctuation marks, but they don't—they're not as used as widely as in the case of English. Partly because of the history of punctuation, you know, going back to Latin and Greek times. On the other hand, didn't Cicero believe that the well-structured sentence was punctuation enough? Yes, indeed he did, and and the and that's going back to the when we started this conversation today, Leonard, about the two big drivers of punctuation, whether whether you need it for elocution or whether you need it for grammar. Uh, Cicero was one of those people who thought, well, if the grammar is right, who needs punctuation? You see. They, a lot of writers will tell you that they say their sentences out loud as they're writing them. Uh, I'm assuming that in the case of Cormac McCarthy, uh, <laughs> he just does a lot of running, run-on sentences. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. I, yeah, I do that. Um, and uh, I, th- I think it helps enormously if you, if you read your, your writing out aloud. Uh, whatever the circumstance, uh, I imagine you guys do it an awful lot when you're writing stuff for presenting over the radio. But I mean, you could, I know I know poets and novelists and myself as a non-fiction writer. Every sentence in the book we're talking about today, I read aloud at some point. And what it does is it shows you the cases where the grammar lets you down, or rather the way you've written your sentence, you've let yourself down, because you suddenly are, are belting along in a in a sentence and it suddenly doesn't go right, and so that gives you a clue that you've got to go back and restructure it. David Crystal's latest book is Making a Point, the persnickety story of English punctuation. It is published by St. Martin's Press. Thank you so much for being on our Please Explain segment today. Well, it's been an absolute delight. Thanks so much for your interest, Leonard. All the best to you.